Thank you, Ona. It's uh, truly humbling for me to be here with you this morning um, as part of the Bible Faculty Series. It was great to hear Dr. Halstead on Monday uh, teach us from Romans 12, 1 and 2. As you recall, just to review what he said, he said that Romans 12, 1 and 2, verses that we're very familiar with, focus verse 1 on being a living sacrifice. As he was talking, I was mindful of something Charles Swindoll once said. He said, the problem with living sacrifices is they tend to crawl off the altar. And verse 2, the process using the word of God to not conform to the world on one side, but be transformed on the other. Now, Paul wrote once that I don't build on another man's foundation, but I'm going to do that today. I want to pick up where Dr. Halstead left off in this conversation. What I would like you to do today with me is to consider this not a chapel necessarily, but a one-on-one, a chance for me to sit down with you, so to speak, and give you some thoughts about what I would like to impart to you as you go through life at the Master's College. As we emphasize life on life, that is certainly something I will resonate well with. And today's chapel message is about that. It's very simple. I'm going to give you three simple points, three verses to hang your thoughts upon. Now to do that, I'm going to begin with something unusual. You're going to indulge me a little bit. As Siona said, I can tend to be a little bit different. And I want to be a little different. I want to begin with two analogies, two metaphors. I'm reminded my Lord Jesus Christ used parables, so maybe giving you these two illustrations, which I want to give to you. And you're probably going to sit there and wonder, why is he talking about this? But I will intersect them at a certain point in this message, and you're going to go, ah, that's why he's doing this. So the first thing I want to talk about over here is I want to talk about weather. You know, you're new to California. A lot of you guys just came in. You flew in from out of state, probably, and you welcome to Southern California, and you're adjusting to our weather here. Our weather is arguably the most boring thing there is in this world. They say that a meteorologist's job in Southern California is the most boring job there is. It's all the same. I'm a native Angelino. I grew up in the San Fernando Valley. I certainly understand L.A. weather, uh, got used to the rhythms of it. They jokingly say we have two seasons in California, particularly Southern California, hot and hotter. Or what one person said, earthquakes and fire. <laughs> and many of you saw the YouTube uh, video clip that was going viral. We had the rains last week. I know it kind of made the rounds. When it rains in L.A., right? And what made that little video clip so funny was the truth of it. You know, we get all excited about 11 seconds. It's so intense. A little earthquake, nah, no big deal. It's L.A. But that changed for me when I went to Texas. Right? I went to Texas, and man, it changed. You know, I, I moved back to Dallas and North Texas, and the first thing I learned in North Texas, if you don't like the weather, hang around 15 minutes. I watched weather change 75 degrees as a cold front went through in 30 minutes. 
thunderstorms. I remember the first time I was in Dallas, I'd only been there for a couple of days, and I'm watching TV with some friends, and across the bottom of the, the television screen is this tornado warning or watch. And I'm thinking, what is that? <laughs> we don't have anything to watch in L.A. You know, and then I started thinking, what county am I in if there's a tornado watch? Now, for some of you, this is simple knowledge. You, you live with this all the time. I'll never forget my first big thunderstorm in Dallas. I'd been there a few days. It was the middle of the night. I was sound asleep, probably dreaming of Mammoth Mountain in Dallas. And all of a sudden, my dorm room lit up. Daylight. The building shook, this loud sound. And I thought for sure, I'm a good dispensationalist, it's the rapture. When I came to my senses, I, you know, time-wise, I thought, well, that's not it, so it must be something else. I thought maybe a bomb went off in the building or there's a gas explosion downstairs. So I race into the hallway, and there's nobody out in the hallway, just me, middle of the night. What had happened was the building next door had been struck by lightning, which I found later was a common thing. We were right next to this big switching station for Southwestern Bell, and it was always getting hit by lightning. I didn't know that. Now, why would I talk about weather with you guys? Because in a few minutes, we're going to talk about storms. And all of you in life are going to face storms. They will take different forms. Life is not perfect, nice, beautiful, clean weather all the time. Except maybe if you live in San Diego. Maybe a little exception there, all right? We like to think that the Christian life is going to be this nice, smooth, easy, beautiful thing, and it's not. You will face hardships, difficulties, struggles. I can predict that now. Now, let me shift gears. I talk about weather on one side, but now let me talk about a completely different subject here. Let's talk about flying. How's that for random? You see, flying, folks, I love to fly. I grew up in a flying family. My mother was a flight attendant, stewardess back in the day for now defunct Eastern Airlines. My father was in the Air Force. From as early as I can remember, I was around airplanes. I would estimate that I've probably flown in and out of 60 different airports worldwide. I have traveled in everything from jumbo jets all the way down to two-seater Cessna 152s. Actually flown those with friends. I'm not a pilot, let me put that out there, but have been with pilots and they allow me, hey, you can take it for a while, and I'd fly. I love aviation. If you were to watch me on an airplane on takeoff, you might notice me quietly opening my watch and watching the takeoff roll, timing it. Because I know at a certain point that airplane is going to reach certain speed, and that pilot's going to call V1 and then V2 and then rotate and take off. And if he doesn't do that in a certain amount of time, I know it's coming and it's not good. I love to fly. Now, using the illustration of flying and weather, you start seeing where these two can intersect. And for many of you, I look at your life as a flying time. Think of yourselves for a few moments as new pilots. When I've talked with pilots, and I'm assuming there might be a few in the room, and I asked pilots, what is the most memorable moment of your flying experience? 
inevitably they will say to me, almost everyone will do this, they say, when I soloed. When I took off for the first time by myself. I was sitting there taxing out and I thought for sure I'm gonna die. And most pilots will tell you that flying is hours and hours of boredom with moments of sheer terror if you fly long enough. Now why would I use a flying illustration with you? Because your life, you just took off. You're on solo here at the Master's College. Many of you brand new to the school. You have taken off, you've gone down the runway your whole life, you're rolling, 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 waiting for that moment, and then all of a sudden you hit V1 and V2 and you pull back on the controls and that plane lifted off, for some of you, a few weeks ago when your parents left you here at WOW and you've got independence for the first time, you're airborne. And for the rest of your life, you're gonna be flying your own plane. And this independence is kind of fun, right? I mean, you guys are here. Think of, it, think of it, all the fun stuff that's going on. For the first time in your life, your parents aren't looking over your shoulders. So you walk into the cafeteria, and you're going down the line, and you look, and there's broccoli. And this little voice in the back of your head, it's mom's voice, says, you need to eat broccoli. But you look down the line, and there's pizza. All the pizza I want free. Well, sort of free. And so you know what you do, it's like blow off the broccoli, I can eat pizza all I want here. And that, that creates some other problems, as you know. Um, but you're not, you don't have anybody telling you what to do, you're on your own. Many of you will experience the classic college thing, which is going to Tommy's at 2 a.m. to get a chili burger here in L.A. My late friend C.W. Smith commented on that, he says, the only problem with chili dogs is they only bark at night. truth to that so you got your independence now but let's take and put this together let me show you where we're going with this on one side you've got weather ahead of you and no pilot I know will ever ever take off without having weather advisories under their belt there are storms coming and for the first time, many of you have taken off now, you're brand new, you're starting off in life, you're airborne, your parents aren't around, your pastors, you're in kind of your own little world here now, and now for the first time, you're a brand new minted pilot flying your own plane. Now, with that truth that you're a new pilot flying, and with the reality that there are storm clouds ahead, what advice could I offer you as an older pilot to newer pilots how do we do this and do this well and succeed? Now, if you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn. We're going to look at three passages of Scripture quickly to the book of Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Now, if you're taking notes this morning, and I would encourage you to do that. I am a college professor. I like to see my students taking notes. You don't take notes, I test all right, a couple things to jot down and think about this week. What advice would I give to you? If I were to share my heart, you're sitting in my office and we're having a cup of coffee like I've done with Siona many times or others of you, and I could just say, hey doc, give me just a couple things, three things to hang my thoughts on so that I can go through Master's College with success, move forward in life with success. What would you say to me in an academic community like the Master's College? The first thing I would say to you is you need to practice biblical truth. 
Notice the way I said that. You need to practice biblical truth. I find it interesting that in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul, as most of you know from New Testament Survey 2, is nearing the end of his life. His life is forfeit. He knows it's only a matter of time before he will be dead. And so certainly he wants to leave his young protege, his young mentor in charge, Timothy, with some concluding thoughts. And if you look at me with me at chapter 4, verse 1, 2 Timothy 4, 1, he says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Now I look at verse 1, and it doesn't take much exegesis to help me understand that he's serious about what he's about to say. I'm charging you, Timothy. This is what you need to do. When I'm long gone, you need to be doing this. You need to proclaim, to preach the word. When I arrived at Dallas Seminary in the fall of 1982, on the front of the campus, and if you've been to the Dallas Seminary campus, you've seen this, there's a large granite monument that sits on the front property facing Live Oak in East Dallas. As you're driving down Live Oak on the east side, or on the um, front side of this sign, it says on the front of it, touching lives with scripture. We used to jokingly call that monument, by the way, the tomb of the unknown seminarian. It looked like a gravestone. But on the back side of that monument was a phrase out of 2 Timothy chapter 4, preach the word. Our task going into ministry was to teach it. Touch lives with scripture, that's what they'll get out there, but we need to preach the word. Now you have come to Master's College because we have a very high commitment to that. There is nothing I could add to that conversation. Our commitment to the inerrant word of God is strong here. And that's what brought many of you here. But I will remind you that in the violent weather that's in front of us, the turbulence of life, this book becomes my centering point. It becomes my flight instruments as a pilot to refer back and find strength from it. See, any pilot out here will tell you the importance of his instruments or her instruments. In storms where you cannot see anything, you've got to rely on your instruments. In fact, pilots even know this. There are two words, VFR, visual flight rules, if the weather's good, but you go to IFR, instrument flight rules, whole different ball game, rule of engagement, once the weather goes bad. Somebody said, how would you explain it? Chuck Swindoll described instrument flying, went with a person in his church one day on a trip in his uh, plane, they were flying IFR into Fullerton. He said, uh, well, he said, the way I could describe it is imagine going 165 miles an hour down I-5 with a blanket thrown over your windshield. You can bet a pilot's gonna study those instruments in bad weather. Now for us, that is the word of God. I must go to this book as instruments to keep me oriented, to keep me stable. See, one of the dangers in instrument flying is that you get vertigo and you can spin the plane into the ground because you're not looking at your instruments and reading them properly. Several years ago, a friend of mine was associate pastor of a church out in Fort Worth, and the pastor there had the privilege of having the base commander from uh, Carswell Air Force Base at his uh, church. It was a fighter tactical wing uh, decommissioned now. 
But in the 80s, this was an active uh, fighter. And the pastor was always teasing the base commander. I want to go for a flight. Take me on a flight. I want to go for a ride in one of your planes, one of your jets. And one day, this base commander came back to the pastor and said, hey, I've arranged it for you to take one of our flights. If you want, uh, meet us out at the base on this day, and you can go out in one of our F-4 Phantoms that's going up this, this week. That's sweet, you know. So they get the pastor out at the base, and they suit him all up. He puts on his G-suit. You know, he gets in the back seat of this F-4 Phantom jet. And as the canopy was coming down, the base commander looked over at the pilot and says, make sure you give him a ride. Now, as that pastor recounts the story, he didn't know which way was up. That guy was looping that plane. He'd fly it upside down. Says, how does the, how does the world look this way? He'd break it into a loop. This poor guy, I mean, I won't, I'll spare you the details. It was quite colorful. <laughs> he told us, he says, my vertigo was so bad, I couldn't tell you which way was up. But you know what? The fighter pilot in command of that jet was fine because he, would know, he knew where he was. He had his instruments. Now, I would suggest to you that's the scripture for us, guys. But having said that, on my first point here, remember we want to practice Biblical truth. I want to give you three little subpoints here to write down as sort of a warning here, a caution. Heads up, beware. And many of you heard me say this in class, but let me reiterate it to the student body. Number one, as a subpoint here under this, let's be careful that we're not under the word, but not in it personally. You see, at Master's College, you can be under the Word. You can be here in chapel. You could be in a Bible class. We have wing studies, dorm studies, college Bible studies, excellent churches in this valley or down in the San Fernando Valley. Under the Word the whole time, but never in it personally. And having gone to Christian college myself, I know the temptation, as Dr. Halstead so eloquently described it on Monday, the danger of allowing my academics to substitute for my spiritual life and my time in the word personally. Don't make that mistake. My counsel to you is make your relationship with Christ your relationship with Christ. Your time in the word, your time in the word. And don't let anything else substitute for that. A second warning I would give to you, subpoint, is make sure you are practicing, not just listening. Be not hearers of the word, but what? Doers. You see, over and over, and we're optimists in Scripture, over and over again we are instructed that while knowledge is significant, knowledge is never an end in itself. Knowledge is a means to an end. The end is obedience. I'm reminded in the Great Commission, the discipleship process is not teach them all that I commanded you, as if it's simply imparting information. The text says, teaching them all to observe all that I commanded you. Teach them to be practitioners. Or I can think of Ezra 7.10. If you walk by Dr. Boland's office, you look outside Dr. Boland's door, he has Ezra 7.10 pasted up there. Good for Dr. Boland. Ezra 7.10. By the way, Ezra's in the crispy section of your Bible, if you haven't noticed that yet, where nobody looks. But it says of Ezra that he set his heart, he committed himself to study, to practice, and then to teach. And too often the temptation is to jump straight from study to teaching. 
But I will tell you that you have somebody that practices, they know how to teach. Now, the third quick subpoint here, and we need to move on, is beware of spiritual obesity. Now, you've had me for classes, I talk about this in here. One of the dangers of input, think about Bible learning as sort of caloric intake. Imagine for a moment that all you ate was cheesecake. Rich diet. Pizza. There's a reason why we call it the freshman 15, by the way. And you're taking all this great knowledge in, but you're not doing anything with it. Now, what would happen if you did that, if you did that physically with food? I'll leave it to your sanctified imagination. But suppose for a moment you work that off. You see, for all of the input you're going to get at the master's college, this rich environment, good, solid, biblical training, as valuable as that is, you're going to need to find means to exercise that. Whether that's through church, or whether that's through the dorm life, or whether that's through outreach week, you need to find ways to work it off. Otherwise, what happens is we become critical. We sit around and find what's wrong with everybody else. I have this vision in my mind, this 800-pound person, big fat guy. That's what's wrong with them. You get my point? That's not what we want. You guys stay in shape. You run. You jog. I see you in the morning when I come in. I'll see groups of students out jogging. Good. That's great. Well, think about spiritual jogging, too. So the first thing I would communicate to you is I would ask you to practice biblical truth. Now let me give you a second point here for those taking notes. Now this is an academic institution, so what I'm going to suggest you think seriously about is modeling academic excellence. I occasionally get asked, Dr. Beely, what's your life verse? Do you have a life verse? And I do. It is Matthew 5, 16. If you have your Bibles, you can look it up. Some of you have committed it to memory, especially if you're in my classes. Matthew 5, 16 says this. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now, if I'm reading that verse correctly, that verse hit me like a two-by-four over the head one day as a student. I realized as a student I was not approaching my work as something that gives glory to God. And if I'm reading this verse correctly, what I am understanding is my work says something about the God I serve. There's a direct correlation. If I believe in an excellent God, how can I believe in mediocre work? Everything I do all of the work I perform, and I will remind you, something as simple as whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. That's pretty simple. Brings glory to God. Modeling academic excellence. Our work reflects our God. Now, what does that mean? Let me talk to you as students first, and then I'm going to turn this around. I'm going to talk to the faculty who are here. I'm not going to leave them out. As you as students, you're here to study. Your occupation, your vocation right now is education and training. You need to be thinking of your education time at TMC as an opportunity to demonstrate excellence in all you do for the glory of God as a student. 
practically the way this looks. I'll give you some thoughts on this. Think about the paper that you turn into your prof. I would just simply ask you to think about this. If you were to turn that paper into Jesus Christ himself, would it look any different? And if the answer to that is yes, you need to rewrite your paper. Nothing less than the best. Some of you heard me tell the story. I was teaching at another university. I won't mention the name. It was a doctoral level course, and I had a student in the class who submitted a paper to me, doctoral level paper, that frankly, if it had been given to me here at the Master's College, I would have given this guy graciously a C- as an undergrad. Horribly written, full of typos, obviously no attention, just shoved at me, hoping I would accept it. When I confronted the student about this, he said, well, look, you're a believer, you should cut me some slack. He was from another Christian college. I won't mention the name, but you'd all know it. Now, when he said that, my sanctification went right out the window. And I got in his face and I said, I will expect more from you as a believer than anybody else in this class. Step up or step out. Siona was right about me. The boss man came up. That student didn't last long in that graduate program. He really committed the unpardonable sin, by the way, when he misquoted Francis Schaeffer, and that did it to me, and so you're gone. <laughs> A Point Loma student, for you that want to know. What about academic integrity? There's a sticky one. If statistics are correct, approximately 80 to 90% of the students on this campus will cheat sometime in their time here. How can we say that our work honors our Lord Jesus Christ when we cheat? You guys know my motto. If you've had me for class, if you cheat in my class, what happens? I train them well. It is not an option. I have been on the military academy campuses at West Point and the United States Coast Guard Academy. You cheat there, you don't fail the class, you, don't, you get booted from the academy. Gone. And furthermore, if you know about it and don't speak up to it, you're gone. Now why would a non-Christian school have higher standards than a Christian school? Academic integrity. Very important. Finally, guys, on this one, then I'm going to talk to faculty for a minute. You know, if you're going to be trained, if, if Luke 6 is correct, Luke 640, that when you're fully trained, you will be like your master, I would encourage you to think about who your master is. Pick your classes carefully. Who do you want to be like on campus? Who do you want to model? Because when you're done, you'll be like them. The man that mentored me, the two men that mentored me through seminary, if you were to listen to those men preach or talk, you'd think, ah, I see it. That's why you're the way you are. Absolutely, and I'm not ashamed of that. Pick your master carefully. Now, to the faculty who are here, some thoughts on this. There are a few of you. What about us? Are we modeling academic excellence before our students? You know, 
Tragically, I could give you a great example of this in Taylor Jones. That man modeled academic excellence. Many of you did not know him, and that's unfortunate. I counted him a very close, dear friend. My first encounter with Taylor Jones was in the fall of 1986. Dr. Stead will remember this. I was a brand new faculty member here. I was 28 years of age. Dr. Stead took a risk, hired me onto the Bible faculty, and I sat in our new faculty orientation. Sitting next to me was Dr. Taylor Jones. And as we struck up a conversation, I said, well, where are you coming from? He said, well, he says, I'm a, I'm a chemist. It's my background. And he says, I just finished an assignment at the United States Naval Academy at Annapolis. Now, you talk about something that's intimidating. Oh, I'm here on a little THM, you know. This guy's <laughs> teaching at Annapolis. But here's the thing about Taylor. He would push me as a faculty member. Somebody once said to me, and this was wise counsel, if you're the smartest in the person in the room, find another, find another room. And when Taylor Jones was in the room, I was not the smartest person in the room. I knew that. But Taylor modeled this. You know, for fun, he decided to take Hebrew with Dr. Chow. Why? Because he wanted to know the scriptures better. He didn't have to do that. It has nothing to do with organic chemistry. He just wanted to know the word better. One summer I was asking what he's up to. Oh, I'm taking theological German down at the seminary. Oh, okay. For fun? Oh, yeah, for fun. Now, most doctoral students I know, they're taking their theological German. Do not call it fun. But he modeled that to our students. And many of you who have sat in his classes know that. I'll miss Taylor greatly because he pushed me. So for us as faculty... That are here. My thought to you guys is if we ask our students to read, are we reading? If we ask our students to write, are we writing? If we ask our students to do research, are we doing research? I'm reminded of what Paul would say in Romans chapter 2. You who teach, do you teach yourself? If I want my students to achieve a certain threshold in their education, I have to model that for them. Not just teach it, but model it. And to my colleagues who are out here, I would challenge you to push forward, find ways to become a better communicator, ways to model excellence to our students so they can become academically excellent as well. Now, my last point this morning. Not only should we practice biblical truth, you can think of 2 Timothy 4. Not only should I model academic excellence, Matthew 5, 16, but number three, we need to demonstrate Christian love. It is interesting to me that hours before Jesus' crucifixion, in what we know as the upper room discourse, high priestly prayer, most of you have studied this in NT1, that Jesus is having a, his final sort of private time with his disciples. My understanding is this is where Jesus would open his heart and share with him things in preparation. He knew crucifixion was imminent, he knew that they were prone to bickering and disagreeing. They certainly did that over leadership, who would be the greatest in the kingdom on the way up to Jerusalem. And knowing this, he would give them advice. He sets the tone for that meeting by, and all, you guys know this, he would wash their feet. 
the act of a servant. But then at the end of this section, in John 13, Jesus says something very, very profound. In John 13, 35, he says, By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. What I find interesting, it's not what I wear that identifies me as a Christian. It's not a cross hanging around my neck as if jewelry will communicate that I'm a Christian. It's not my fish sticker on the back of my minivan or the fish sticker eating the Darwin symbol on the back of my minivan. It's not necessarily the college I attend. What will mark me out, if I'm understanding what Jesus says, what marks me out as a Christian is my love for for other people. Certainly for a community of believers like the Master's College, but outside of this, my neighbor. You, You all know the story from Luke's Gospel of the person that sort of snarkily said to Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? And he gives them the story of the Good Samaritan. We must love one another. That is what marked out the early church. It's what marks us out. And in an intense community experience like the Master's College, there are plenty of opportunities to demonstrate love. Whether it's a freshman on the wing who's struggling with adjustments and homesickness, it's a person that's probably in a major that's a little bit past what their ability is and they're struggling with what do I do with the fact I can't pass this class. Or I don't have the study skills I thought I had. And coming alongside them and helping this. I was reminded of this in college. When I was in college, some of you heard me tell the story, I had a student who was a blind student next door to me in the dorms. And occasionally Tim would come over, and this was when I was taking first year Greek, and, and he would come over and say, I need some help. He says, I can't find my reader. It's not working properly. I need you to, could you read my assignment to me? And I'm looking at my schedule, and it's, it, I'm thinking, I don't have time for this, honestly. I got Greek. But I knew that true love, with apologies to Princess Bride, um, that true love meets that need. You know what I find interesting, folks? Think about this with me. People ask, what is love? Well, obviously the scripture gives in 1 Corinthians 13 a beautiful exposition of what love is. But what I find interesting, to study 1 Corinthians 13, when Paul writes that to the Corinthian church, he identifies love as only two things. Love is patient. Love is kind. And then this is what love is not. gives a negative list behind that. Now what I find interesting, that true love is patient and kind. Both of those are fruits of the Holy Spirit. Go back and read Galatians 5. If I want to truly love somebody, I have to be controlled by the Holy Spirit, walking in the Word, walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, to be able to show that person the love that would be truly biblical. True love is patient and kind. So the simple way to check and say, how am I doing here? Am I demonstrating true Christian love? Am I patient and kind with people around me? Certainly in a dorm. There are going to be times your roommate, you're going to be convinced it's the abomination of desolation. (laughs) Fair enough. Or that guy down the hall or that gal down the hall that has a spiritual gift of irritation and they're exercising their gift. (laughs) Right? 
We know what it's like. Being patient and kind. Nurturing in those situations. So wrapping this up, guys, as you've now taken off, you're new pilots, you're flying out, you know, that storm somewhere down the road, I don't know if it's a year, it could be next week, it could be 10 years, it could be 30 years, it's coming. Talk to any person in this room that's 15 years older than you and they will talk about the storms they've encountered. It's time to begin preparing for those storms on the flight now while you're at TMC. And three simple things. Practice biblical truth. Model academic excellence as a student because that will carry over into the workplace as you become an excellent employee. And people begin asking you, why are you so different here than everybody else? You actually do your work. And finally, demonstrate Christian love. Let's close with a word of prayer. Almighty God, you alone know the future of these students and this faculty. You remind us to count our days, to remember that we are just vapor. Lord, certainly we know that life has difficulties in front of us. And as we gain our independence, we gain altitude in our lives, we enjoy the flight, inevitably the storms of life will come. Maybe at the school, maybe in the future. Father, they will come. May we be a community that not only teaches the word of God, but practices it daily. May we model academic excellence, not only the city of Santa Clarita, but to our accrediting agencies and our external publics who look at us as an academic institution and wonder how good are they. And certainly as a community, may we be marked out by demonstrating true Christian love. Father, I lift up these students. We ask that you would richly bless them today as they go through their day, and we thank you for the opportunity we could spend for a few moments in this chapel. Bless them, Lord, and provide for their needs. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen.